opportunity dances with those already on the dance floor. Hello and welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest problems. Today's leader, Lindiwe Matlari, the founder of one of Africa's largest computer science NGOs, one using tech education to reshape opportunity across the continent and create a pipeline of new developers, engineers, and tech entrepreneurs. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. The changes that we are making really is not just for ourselves, but it's for the next generations, for our children, our children's children. Lindiwe Matladi founded Africa Teen Geeks in 2014 after meeting an eight-year-old coder in the U.S. who built her own app. That pivotal moment inspired her to research computer science education in Africa and eventually do what she'd never imagined, launch an NGO to teach disadvantaged children how to code. Since then, the group has introduced 800,000 children to new training and new ways of thinking about their futures all to create a pipeline of new developers, engineers, and tech founders. But building this organization did not happen overnight. It has taken hard work, cold emails, and plenty of bootstrapping. Linda Waite talked to meet the leader about this work and the block and tackle effort that actually reshapes opportunity, like how tackling tech education actually means tackling equity issues on the ground, like transport or school lunches. And while this organization is changing children's lives, it's changed Linduay too. She talked to Meet the Leader about how it has deepened her understanding about the power of mentorship. And helping her is her own mentor, the inspiring Google innovator, Marion Croak, who's helped her think differently about issues like patience, humility, and how true leaders actually make lasting change. Linduay will talk about all of this. But first, she will take us back to her earliest days at Africa Teen Geeks, the ones that gave the group its start. I was attending an executive program at MIT. So, you know, I wasn't planning to run an NGO. My plan was to become a, an effective executive you know, and, and, and grow my business. And um, just seeing that little girl, it, I don't know, it just something shifted in me and I was like, you know, how many kids that I can go back home and inspire? And I started Googling about what was happening in South Africa with regards to teaching of coding and in our schools. And I found that it was only taught um, from, you know, grade 10 to 12, which is the last three years of, of schooling, but it was only in, in, um, in affluent schools and it was in, in townships and rural schools. And that for me was when our organization was founded because I started emailing, I'm very good at finding people's emails on Google. So, so I found the email address of um, Mr. Mteto Nyati. At the time, he was the my managing director of Microsoft South Africa. I just sent a, a cold email and said, this is who I am. And, you know, I want to do this. And, and I'm thinking you are one of the largest tech companies. And hopefully this is something that might interest you. And, and then he, for, to my surprise, he responded immediately and I said, we can set up a meeting. I was like, well, you know, I'm still in the U.S., but I'm coming back on Thursday. The next thing he said, well, my PA will set up. When I arrived on Thursday, actually, I went from my house straight to his office. And, you know, and he gave us our first grant. We're not even registered yet. 
But, you know, part of it was that because even during the time I did my homework and I think he felt this is somebody credible that you could support. Part of, of my vision was to influence policy. So I started nagging the Minister of Basic Education and everybody there. Like, I think I probably sent an email every day. I think by the time they met me, it was like, we need to just meet and get rid of her. And for my surprise was, you know, she was like, if this is something that you want to do as a department, you know, we can't focus on coding because there's so many bread and butter issues. But if this is something that you want, we can support you. We can partner with you. And we then as Africa Teen Geeks raised the funding um, to develop the coding and robotics curriculum that it, South Africa has right now. So I'm very proud of that to say, you know, this is something that will impact millions of children after I'm gone. Because once you impact a school, you know, you impact that policy, you know that it's something that every child will, will, will have an opportunity to learn. And that's, that's really what has been driving me. So I'm excited that we are there right now. You mentioned a little bit about the bread and butter issues that needed to be dealt with. Can you give some examples of those barriers that you needed to clear before you could even hope to tackle coding? The classes we used to use the University of South Africa um, and all their labs are in suburbs and we were targeting children from the townships. So although we had the support from the South African Broadcasting you know, Corporation, so they were promoting us and doing live reads, but you'll go to the lab and you like, you think I'm going to find a lab overflowing and there'll be 10 kids. I'm like, but why? And then you started realizing that the children wanted to come, the parents wanted to come, but they couldn't afford the transport because they had to come there. And then I said, okay, we'll get the transport. And then, then I realized, oh my God, when they come, some of these kids cannot afford their lunch because the class starts at eight and finishes at, at two. Some of the kids will start making fun of what these children have for lunch. And we started thinking, okay, we have to equalize everybody. So we're going to now have to raise money so that we can provide their lunch. So that at the end of the day, all the kids have to focus on is what they're being taught, not what they have on their lunchbox. And those were, you know, little things that as you start, you don't really think about. You think, okay, there's an opportunity. Everybody's going to rise. But the fact that you, you have an opportunity, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody is going to access it. Opportunity dances with those already on the dance floor. You can only take advantage of an opportunity if you are already ready and you've got everything for you to take advantage of it. And that's why it changed the way we developed our program, you know, understanding that you have to not just think about creating an opportunity. Is that can these people that I am trying to impact, can they access what I am providing? And that has been a big change in the way we develop our program. So Africa Teen Geeks tailors its curriculum to different needs in different settings. And I think some of those customizations might be surprising to people. Can you talk about how the curriculum in one area is different than another? Um, a lot of children, when they start schooling, they start in their mother tongue. So they still can speak English. So then we have you know, created the books and then translated them into their languages. But depending on where they are, we will then change the examples that we use, right? So if somebody who's grown up in Johannesburg can understand when we talk about Mandela Bridge um, or what is the Apartheid Museum, right? And so you can use those examples because it means something to them. But then if you go to somebody, a child, for example, in my village where I came from, and you talk about a Mandela Bridge, they don't even, we don't even know what a bridge. I mean, the first time I saw, you know, like the traffic lights was when I was 18 and in going to university. You know, I've seen them on TV, but I've never actually, when I got to Ketan, I saw robots, I wanted to touch them. 
oh, so this is what they look like, right? And those are the little things that you you have to think about because if they cannot relate to the example you're making, then you lose them. And we wanted to make sure that what we are teaching them means something to them and it resonates to them and it basically reaches them at the point of where they are. Because once you remove that intimidation of, I've never been to Joburg, I don't, you know, I don't know what the fourth industrial revolution is. I mean, that's a big thing in South Africa right now. Everybody talks the four IR, four IR, but then when you go and you meet parents and they say, I want my daughter, you know, to study to, to become four IR. And I was like, okay, now I need to, you know, <laughs> start from scratch and explain to them these buzzwords. Because I think sometimes a lot of us who are sort of elite and educated, we sort of live in this bubble of our own world where we think everybody understands what we are talking about. And I think for me, it's been something that I'm very conscious of as I as I get opportunities and I, I start being seen as elite or whatever and, and, and playing and in platforms and, and being in rooms that, you know, I never dreamt I could be, but I still have to maintain that understanding to say, I want to make sure that as many Lindyways can get to where I am. And that means I have, I have to think about the way I speak to people and, and the way I explain things and, 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 and how I make sure that I can bring everybody with me. One of the master's programs that I started a few years ago at Columbia, one of the professors said, if you cannot explain something in one sentence, then you don't know it. And, and it's always been my way. Like if I need to be able to explain it in one sentence and in the most simplest way that even somebody who don't know what I'm talking about will get it. You mentioned that you want to expose these children to your mentors and your influences. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I think everybody who's probably seen me or know me, they know that I love Dr. Marion Croak, you know, the VP of engineering at Google. I admire that woman so much, but I got, I'm one of those lucky women that I can actually say she's my mentor. She's a person I text and she responds to me every day. And she's always there when I need her to come and speak to my kids. And, you know, she's, she's really been um, one person that has inspired me so much to even pursue, you know, all the stuff that I have given, you know, what she has achieved and, you know, and, and how difficult it was for her to get to where she is and the door that she's opened, but also the great role mo model that she is to, you know, to me and, 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 and how she's been accessible to this South African young girl, you know, given, you know, the, the powerful role and, 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 and her impact in the world. So she's one person that I, Every time I have an event, I'll just say, you know what, I need you. And she always shows up. I mean, she really makes the time because she, you know, she also, uh, you know, she's passionate about, about the work that we're doing, but about the impact. So having, you know, getting these kids to meet someone like that. I mean, you, these are people you read about. These are people like even for me with that, I never thought is somebody I can, you know, being on, on texting, you know, <laughs> with, you know. So it's, um, those are the people I want these, these kids to see but also to see that if they work hard, if they persist, if, if, they, if they persevere, how far they can go. And for those of you who don't know, Marion Croak helped develop voice over internet protocol, and that's the technology that converts your voice into a digital signal, the technology that has sort of powered all of our Zoom calls over these many COVID months, but also is powering this very podcast interview. There was a really great moment last fall when you and Marion were on a session for our World Economic Forum's Pioneers of Change event, and you had been selected as one of our Schwab Foundation Social Innovators of the Year. 
and Marion stopped during the panel to congratulate you. And I thought that was an amazing moment. Uh, what was it like for you? It means so much to me because I really have so much admiration and respect. And I think for me, you know, given what she's achieved, you know, her innovation, you know, having over 250 patents behind the name, but for her to be so humbled and so accessible and 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 so supportive you know and 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 not wanting just to be the first and only you know she doesn't and she really wants to see how she can supporting as many young women that can come up and i mean i don't ever think i can ever be at her level but but sometimes she inspires me to think you know what maybe maybe you know it's possible but she i think that every day is just it's just that walking inspiration and you know with but I think for me mostly is a grace and and humility and just teaches me also how to be um with all these young people that maybe look up to me and think you know of me the way I think of Marianne to know how to treat them how to to be there for them everyone we work with changes us in some way What's something that you learned from Marion that you apply as a mentor to the kids at Africa Teen Geeks? Being present, you know, if they ask for that one hour, then my phone is off. Then I'm just going to be there and be present and listen and respond, you know? And I think that's one thing that she has taught me. It's like I've never, every time when she will call me, I will feel like I'm the only person in the world who met us that, at that moment. Right. And I think it, it is so important because there's so many other pressing things. But for for that child at that moment when they're speaking to me, it's one of the most important uh, time of their lives. And they really are waiting to hear me being present and also paying attention and give, you know what I mean, being there. And that's one thing that she has taught me is that even if it could be that 15 minutes call, 20 minute call, I will know that she will be talking to me. And, and she will make sure that she's there. And also what I ask her, she always will respond. And that's why one thing I do, I respond to every text, every email, because that's one thing, she, and that's what she does. She responds to every text and every email I send her. And that means so much to me. And I think about that, and I'm like, I have to be there. Because by doing that for me, how that it inspired me, how it also pushes me to aspire for more, to want to achieve more, even if it's to honor her so that she, I don't feel, I don't let her down. If I do that to the kids that are coming after me, then, you know, we can bring and raise more little Marian Crow from South Africa, right? Or up in Africa in general, which is my passion. Yeah. So you have a passion for educating teachers. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why that's so important? A lot of black middle class we don't take our children to township schools. We take them to either private schools or affluent schools. And the reason for that is that the education there is better. They've got better qualified teachers. They've got better infrastructure. And unless we start thinking about, you know, even our in, in terms of our history in South Africa, where a lot of uh, the teachers that are still in the system right now studied what was called Bantu education. So, which was inferior to what, you know, the white people, in terms of what they were taught, you know, there were two curriculums, one for black people and one for white. And those teachers are still there. And if we want to make sure that there's a success of a child is not purely dependent on who their mothers are or, or their parents are or, or the address where they live, we have to make sure that we can equip 
one, the schools, but most importantly, support the teachers. Because, you know, in my daughter's school, she's never been in a class where there were like more than 20 of them in a classroom. But where in where I come from, a teacher will have one teacher have to look after 70, sometimes even 90 kids in a classroom. How is that teacher going to be able to understand or know every child what they need? So understanding those little, you know, um, uh, challenges that are there, but also understanding that even the quality of the education the teacher themselves got is not the same. So the question is, how do we make sure that we uplift because i think sometimes people will focus on maybe i need to go and put a computer lab in a school what we've seen that you go and do that and they see this white elephant nobody's going to use them because you didn't think about oh i have to train the teacher i've been to schools where computers were not working you know you find out are they broken like no actually the mouse are lost and i was like well you don't necessarily need to have a mouse you know but those little things they, they wouldn't even know how to deal with that so it's really important that we support the teachers because if the teacher is equipped, if the teacher is qualified, if the teacher is confident, they will teach the curriculum with passion. But if they are not comfortable themselves, they are not going to teach it. And what that's going to happen is that we end up with children, in our, in, in our case, you know, grade fours and grade five who can't read for meaning. You know? and, and I think it's really important that we focus on. So that's something that I'm really passionate about. So that goes exactly back to what we were saying about Marion Croke and that value of that presence and that connection that you just can't get in a crowded space with 90 kids. Uh, what do you think about that? Kids need to be seen. Children need to know that they matter. And I know that, you know, for me, a lot of even the teachers that I've had that I can go back and still remember their names were those who remembered mine, right? Were those when I went and I spoke to them, they looked me in the eye. Those who were interested on, on in me, where I come from. And if you then a teacher have got 90 kids, there's no way that you can have time to give every child who needs you the attention they need. You can't support them. Sometimes you just pass them and then you don't even know that this child can't even read, right? And I think that is, is, is a, it's, it's a serious challenge. And, and, and it's not just for South Africa, but it's something that is happening all over Africa. You look at the UNESCO report on education, just take what was written about Africa 50 years ago, and then now you just change the dates. It's the same thing. We still don't have enough quality education. We don't have enough qualified teachers. Those problems are still there. And unless we think about it differently, my daughter one day will be talking to your daughter about the same thing. And I hope that doesn't happen. So I think that's an interesting point you make because with COVID, people say, hey, we're thinking more globally than we ever have. We have more awareness than ever of these digital gaps. But it seems like there's still this new challenge that even with this awareness, there's still a greater need and still more action that needs to be taken at an even greater scale. Uh, what do you think about that? My biggest fear is that you know, COVID, you know, the vaccine will work and we're all going to go back to the way things are. I mean, it wasn't like we didn't know that digital inclusion was a problem. This was so visible to everybody and it affected everybody and people, most people are willing to talk about it, but not necessarily to do something about it. And I think for me, that is really um, the problem. And I think part of it is also the way um, solutions are done. I've seen even with myself as I've become relatively more better off and more elite rather we get to think that we can solve problems for people you go into a poor community and you think you know what you know what you need 
You don't have a water. You just need a well. Okay, I'm just going to put $100,000 and I'm going to build a well. And then you don't realize that actually um, what happens when this well breaks, right? Because you don't have the people that have been trained to, to gonna fix it. And I've seen it many times. You find that these solutions, you come with them because you think you know what they need. People go, you know what? I'm gonna go to Tanzania for one month. And then they come back, they can write a thesis and a great you know, opinion piece for the World Economic Forum. All of a sudden, they're experts on Tanzania, right? And, and, I think, and, and, and that is really the problem. And, and unless we start rethinking the way we wanna help people and the way we see people, you know, I may have a PhD from, you know, Harvard, but I don't have a PhD in poverty in Malawi because I've never lived there. I don't understand the situation. And when I get there, I need to humble myself enough to let those people educate me. And I think it's sometimes that we feel comfortable when we sit at the table with people that think like us, that agree with us, and 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 we don't want those people that will make us feel uncomfortable. Or sometimes because we don't have the solutions, and we don't we want to act so that we can come and write great reports, and um, you know quickly. And I think it's really one of those things where because it doesn't affect you, it doesn't mean it's less important. Maybe taking the time to understand and see how you can help people, not just by coming with your PhD or with a, a check, because sometimes the check is not enough. And we have seen it over and over again. Just signing a check doesn't solve anything. So you talked about exposing kids to new ideas of what they could be. So what does that look like for the kids who went through your program in the beginning, in 2015, 2016? What are they able to tap into now that they might not have been able to had they not gone through Africa Teen Geeks? You know, one of the first thing we do with the kids when they come to our lab is that we, we ask them to do a vision board. So we go and get magazines and we say, you know, if you had all the money in the world, your mother was Oprah Winfrey, your father was Bill Gates, what life do you see? And we just give them those magazines and say, come back and tell. And what was amazing that most of them will put at the beginning, they'll say, you know, I want to own a, um, a garage because the same entrepreneurship they see is a person who owns a garage. Or they're like, you know, I want to be a policeman or I want to drive a truck or I want to work as a waiter. We're dealing in a country where there's still a lot of high unemployment, just even having somebody who works who as a job, as a waiter, and come home for, for, the, for these kids, that person has a good life. And that's what they will put. Then we started, you know, work with them, we teach them a code, we expose them to what is out there, we expose them to leaders, we get them to visit, you know, companies. For example, you know, pre-COVID, we used to take them to visit the offices of, of Oracle, offices of Microsoft, and we just take these kids. And then at the end of the year, we ask them, write a vision board. You see the change. Like now, what you're going to see, you're going to see a Bentley. You're going to see them saying, okay, I'm going to drive a Bentley. This is going to be my house. This is where my children, where they're going to go. And they're going to go to this university and I'm going to be a CEO. And then they put it a picture at a table, having a meeting with Bill Gates or a meeting with Mark Zuckerberg. You know, it changed. You see their aspiration rising. And what we've also seen is that these kids now, now they all want to go to university. First of all, our classes were held at the University of South Africa. So the first thing that they want to do now is get past metric and go to, to university. And, and actually some of the kids, we have a couple of them that Africa Teen Gives is, is paying um, 
for their university, you know, where they actually studying STEM. And we don't and we don't force them to say this is what you must study, but the majority of the kids actually get it and they do want to study STEM. I mean, I ended up wanting to doing masters in technology management with Colin because they were starting asking me, so what did you study? I'm like, no, I did business. I'm like, well, but you said there's not enough black women in tech. So why aren't you doing it? Like, okay, okay. That's what I'm going to do. Right. I can't tell them that this is what is required. And yet I am comfortable where I am. But I think what for me that is more rewarding it's just seeing this little boy who thought, you know, just they they would have succeeded if they became, a, you know, a, a truck driver to this boy saying, I want to build the next Facebook. And I think for me, that's really important because even if they may not get there, probably even if they fail, they will feel higher than everybody else. If they don't build a Facebook, they could run a Facebook. And that's what we're hoping that they do. So that idea ladders up to what you were saying about entrepreneurship. I mean, after all, entrepreneurs are not all 20-something wonderkins. Most of them, statistically, are in their 40s, and they're solving problems based on something that they've seen in the workplace or something from their training. Can you talk a little bit about this uh, role that entrepreneurship can play and why that's so important for reshaping opportunity, but also in Africa? I think for me, one of the biggest uh, gripes I have with our education system and specifically in Africa is that we teach young people to, to study so that they can get a job, right? And that is what they really aspire for. Um, you want to go to university so that you can be employed. And, and that is the mindset that we currently have. And, and that is also, I believe, is the reason why we have so much high unemployment, even within our graduates. And, and that's because we are not raising enough entrepreneurs. And I think also when we think about some of the solutions that we have and the creation of employment is looking into big business. Big businesses are not in the business of creating employment. They're in a, in a business of efficiencies. So their focus should not be to try to think that Google is going to come in Africa and create jobs. That's not what they are. And there's nothing wrong with that because we need to understand what the role of big businesses is and see how we can get them to support so that we can grow other companies that can actually become the, you know, the Google of this world. But the most importantly, we have to teach innovation in the right way so that these kids can start thinking about it as early as possible and they can start even planning their lives differently in terms of what they want their, their life to mean. But I don't want to go and go to university, university so that I can study and get a job. But I want, by the time I get to university, I want to go to university to study so that it can help me to develop my business, to, to grow and impact more people and studying those companies from where they are, you know, those regional solutions, those regional companies. So we need more garages that can be turned into awesome offices. So it is widely acknowledged within a certain circle that tech can be a multiplier for every big solution that we want to scale from social justice to climate mitigation. But it's widely acknowledged within a very small group of people, a group of people who know what the UN sustainable development goals are, people like you and me. Why isn't this more mainstream in your mind? What do you think about that? I think I would say for me, probably in, in, in South Africa and Africa, is that when you start saying tech, it's a very elite thing, right? Um, access to the internet. I mean, you can't, you can't really have a lot of tech and be, have, use tech unless you have 
access to the internet or have a computer or have a good cell phone, right? And the majority, while we even talk about that, you know, there's a this huge cell phone penetration in Africa, but what kind of phones are those, right? It's not the kind of phones that you and I have. And I think that's it goes back to access. We see it, we see the potential that it has, but as long as we still have so many people unable to um, access and use really the power of technology the way you and I use it, the way it has enhanced and improved our lives, unless, as long as that is still the case, many people are not going to see it like that. Because I can go home and like and talk about, oh my God, I can watch any movie, I can watch Netflix, but my sister will be like, what? I can't afford that. What is Netflix? But we'll be like, oh my God, how can you not know, right? Like, you know, you can read any book and a book is actually cheaper if you have it on your Kindle. Like, what's that? And I think as long as that remains the problem, and and I think for many developing countries, and not just in Africa, but you know, in um, you know South America and in you know, some countries in Asia, um, there's still a lot of that digital divide. There's still the lack of infrastructure, even that, you know. And and unless I think for me is looking at how we can get a lot of the governments and, and deal with the a lot of the other challenges that are there from corruption and 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 hopefully elect people that really care about making a difference and people that will really think about how do we solve this problem starting small. I mean, we're not expecting to come and just put the whole internet infrastructure overnight, but it has to be something that there's that willingness and that intent, that they're intentional about it. So that by the time we get to, because I know now, I think there's no way that we're going to reach all the, the sustainable developing um, goals in 2030. What needs to happen? I think the next UN, they're probably going to say, okay, it's this SDG 2060. <laughs> We're going to keep moving, moving. We need to get more people that care about these things, right? And, and, and once we can do that and get them to then start working together and collaborate, because part of the problem that I see is that we all, everybody wants to be, I am the one who came up with it. I want to have all the glory. I don't want to collaborate because if I collaborate, then is I've got a co-founder. I'm not the main person. And and that that kind of thinking and selfishness, I hope that we can all get away from that and realize that the changes that we are making really is not just for ourselves, but it's for the next generations, for our children, our children's children. It doesn't matter who gets the credit as long as the work is done. Is there a book that you recommend? I actually should be Professor Christensen's book, The Prosperity Paradox, because I've read a lot of books. I read a lot. And this was one book where I was like, this guy got it. He really got it. And and if we can have as many people to, to think about innovation like that, to think about solving poverty like that, not just by signing a check, not by thinking you know what people want, what people need, but and really think about yourself as a partner and collaborate and help. And 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 also thinking about entrepreneurship differently, about even innovation, like it, you know, the market creating innovations and getting this everybody to start thinking about that. I, I really hope that all your 5 million listeners and that you reach can read that book. I think for me, like over the next few years, my goal is to try and make sure that every high school 
kid in Africa, get that book because it will change the way they see the world and it will change the way they see themselves and their role in really innovating themselves out of poverty. So you founded Africa Teen Geeks in 2014. Now it's 2021. How have you changed as a leader during that time? How are you different from the woman who founded it? I think I am more realistic now. I'm still a huge optimist, but I call myself a cautiously optimistic, ambitious person. I still have big goals, big dreams, but I'm more patient with myself. I know that a lot of the impact that I I hope to make in my lifetime, I may not reach all of it, but I want to make sure that at least where I am, I can make the difference, even if it's with one person who will be inspired to go and change one person's life. And especially with, with girls and women. If you support one woman, you've supported the community. We just like that. And I think if we can just try and multiply a lot of women and people that cares and empower them. I, I'm, I'm more passionate about, about that than I was then, you know? And I think I was that person I was talking about, like where you're like, I want to be the one I want to be. Now it's no longer about that. It's like, I want, how can I get as many people who care about what I'm doing coming together for us to get this done? Because I realized that it's it's not about the accolades, it's about the impact. And once you think about that, then you realize that it's not about you. And sometimes now, even when I approach people, I don't mind not for even for people not to even to know that I'm in, I'm involved in a project. You know, the people who met us will know. But I understand sometimes I have to humble myself and be the small one in the room so that the work can be amplified. And so how important is that systems thinking for everyone as we go and we tackle these big problems? How important is that for leaders? I mean, it is important. You know, COVID has has exacerbated, but also exposed how big the digital gap is. If you think about the progress of women, I mean, Web did that report before COVID. You said it was going to take 100 years before we, you know, we reached the, the I mean, gender parity. And then last year, you said it's now going to take 135 years. So now, like, you know, so that's not a problem that Linda alone can solve. That's not a problem. No matter how much money you have, you can't, you can't pay yourself, you know, um, you know, out of that. And it's something that all of us have to care about. And all of us have to see, can we make a difference where we are? You know, and 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 just those small little different that we need. It will take that collaborative effort and also the humility to know that sometimes um the other person in the room may have a bigger platform and a bigger voice than you, and rather let them be the person that talks about this because then it amplifies your work more than if you wanna come and say it was my idea. Um, you know, when I was uh, studying my business, I remember one time a professor said to me, sometimes as an entrepreneur, you get, it's your business, it's your baby. And you don't want anybody to come in, even with the investment, you don't want to give your shares. It's like, it's mine. It's like, you must think about it. Does it, you know, what difference does it make to have 100% of nothing and 2% of something? And, 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 and that has been my attitude ever since to say, I would rather have 2% of something than 100% of nothing. Um, it doesn't matter. There's so many people with great ideas. If you find yourself with people that can 
help you make those ideas happen because ideas only matters if they're implemented. And if you cannot implement it, but you want to be selfish and say, it's my idea, then you're going to die with your idea. There's so many graves, people out there who die with great ideas that never seen the, the light of day. So my attitude is, I don't have to be the one that shines as long as we get the work to happen. That was Lindy Way, Matlati. Before we go, don't forget Meet the Leader's sister podcast, Radio Davos, helping you understand the biggest problems of our time. Find the latest episode of that and Meet the Leader on wef.ch slash podcasts. That's it for me. Thanks so much to Gareth Nolan and Robin Pomeroy for all of their help with the creation of Meet the Leader. And my thanks go out to this week's guest, Lindaway Matlati. And thanks to you for listening. Take a moment to rate and review our podcasts. And for more extensive Q&As from our guests, go online to wef.ch slash podcasts and follow us online on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and on Twitter using the handle WEF. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day. <laughs>